Well, welcome everyone to Shaping Vaping, our weekly conversation about the latest in vaping policy. We're delighted to have the fantastic Mark Gunther back to our table today. Mark is an outstanding journalist who does groundbreaking work in a range of topics on public health policy and philanthropy in particular. He's also applied more journalistic scrutiny to Bloomberg Philanthropies than the New York Times, Washington Post, and all the TV networks combined. So, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us again today. My pleasure. You're too kind, Amanda, but I'm happy to speak with you. Yeah, well, we're a big fan of your work, and we appreciate all of the investigation you do into these topics. So just a reminder for everybody listening, if you've got any questions along the way, just raise your hand in the space, and we'll do our best uh, to get you promoted here so that you can go ahead and ask Mark all of your questions. Uh, So, Mark, first today, I wanted to talk about uh, your recently published story um, about a group of two dozen top tier tobacco science experts uh, that had written to Michael Bloomberg pleading with him for a private conversation on the latest scientific developments in the field. But Bloomberg refused to speak to them. Uh, I wanted to walk us through how that story came about and what's happened since. Sure. Um, so really the story took root uh, a full year ago this week, actually, I had spent some time at the very end of 2019, uh, 2020 and the beginning of 2021 uh, reporting on vaping, which I came to as a complete novice, um, having never been a smoker. And to this day, I've never tried to vape. I keep wanting to, but I never kind of get around to it. Um, But a source of mine said, take a look at what Bloomberg Philanthropies is doing on vaping. Um, make up your own mind, but my belief is they're on the wrong side of a very important issue. And that was enough to get my attention. And it led to quite a long story published in March of last year in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which is sort of the Bible of philanthropy journalism, basically questioning Bloomberg's, you know, $160 million three-year campaign against vaping in the U.S. And didn't even really take into account what I've learned since uh, the extensive work that they've done all around the world with the World Health Organization and a slew of other organizations, vital strategies here in Washington, D.C., where I'm based to try and, in effect, shut down vaping on a global basis. And I have to say, I came away after reading a lot of the science and looking at the credentials of the scientists fundamentally believing that um, for two reasons, vaping um, should not be shut down either in the U.S. or elsewhere. Reason number one, because it does appear to be for millions of people an effective way to stop smoking. And reason number two, because of just a more fundamental philosophical belief that I have that people should be able to do what they want with their own bodies. Uh, Anyway, the story came out and I guess beginning right after the story came out, a group of senior scientists from the world of tobacco control. Um, I don't believe any of them have any vaping industry connections. I might be wrong about that, but I'd be surprised. They uh, said, hey, this story came out in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. We saw your response to it, which came from both Bloomberg and the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. We didn't feel your response addressed the criticisms 
uh, can we please sit down and talk with you and and present our side of the story? Because we don't think you're getting all the information. And I vaguely heard about this uh, off the record last summer and fall. And I think um, to their credit, the scientists didn't want publicity because what they really wanted to do was get into Bloomberg philanthropies and talk ideally with Michael Bloomberg or perhaps with Kelly Henning, who's, I think, head of all their health giving. Uh, so they were not trying to you know, put any public pressure on because sometimes that will backfire. But, you know, it got to be close to a year later and they were very unsatisfied with the responses they got. And at that point, actually something interesting happened, Amanda. At that point, they wanted to share it with me. And I actually said, you know, maybe I'm not the right person to write this. It might feel a little bit self-serving since I had written the original March story that got the whole I was going to call it a dialogue. It really wasn't a dialogue, but created the letter writing to, to, to Bloomberg. And I suggested they go to a larger publication, which might have more impact. And mm. uh, the folks I was speaking with essentially said it's just too difficult and frustrating to tell the whole vaping story to someone who hasn't paid attention and get them to understand what it's all about. And that that may get to our broader conversation about why the generally the coverage of vaping has been, you know, quite poor, I think. Um, so they gave me the letters and I tried to, again, speak to Bloomberg about why they wouldn't have a meeting. I didn't even get a response to my email asking them, you know, I didn't even get a, sorry, we won't comment. And uh, that was the end of the story. And And one last thought on it, I think the reason it was worth doing in the end is because it just points to the sheer lack of accountability of these, you know, large foundations that when they do give away money, um, you know, it, it is a form of exercising power, just like there's corporate power and political power and protest power philanthropy on that scale is an exercise of power, but it's a kind of power where there really is, unfortunately, no accountability. So it can be done well, it can be done badly, but ultimately it's up to no one but the donor. Right. You know, I, there, there's so much that, that you just said that I think we could unwind here. You know, number one, I like that you point out that that you were never a smoker. You're not a vapor. You've got no affiliation to any um, industry participants, anything like that. You approached this as someone who has a, a very long time background in reporting on, on philanthropy and particularly the concerns that you have. Um, with the ability to yield that kind of power without, you know, oversight or accountability. And so, you know, we're very thankful that your source put you on uh, to this topic in relation to vaping and what's going on with Bloomberg philanthropies, because, you know, when when we as, you know, small businesses in this arena, as smokers who are trying to quit with these products, when we are working against those kinds of well-funded uh, philanthropic interests, you know, oftentimes it feels like nobody sees what's going on here. And so, you know, I think um, your reporting on this subject is validation to a lot of us that we're not insane, that this is actually something huge and striking going on here that that is worthy of discussion. And so thank you, number one, for that. Um, and number 
too, you know, you pointed out in your piece that um, the researchers who who wrote this letter to Bloomberg, they're also not not tied to industry in any particular way. These are people, you know, the former uh, head of the Truth Initiative, um, right. Ken, Ken Warner from the University of Michigan School of Public Health, um, these kinds of people, people that are just objectively looking at the evidence and, you know, seeing that the biggest obstacle to the truth coming out is this Bloomberg agenda. And obviously, you know, naturally wanting to write into him to see if, if any kind of balanced discussion could be had. Um, you know, but obviously there was, you know, no response to your request for comment on your story. They didn't get any traction in their desire to set a meeting. Um, so have these scientists and researchers given up hope of any meaningful dialogue with Bloomberg at this point? I think they, you know, you'd really have to ask people like uh, Ken Warner and um, Clive and, you know, the people who signed the letter, um, Clive Bates, whether they've given up. But, I mean, they waited a year. They wrote two very long letters. They produced a tremendous amount of documentation. If I'm remembering correctly, there was like a 17-page uh, you know, addendum to one of the letters simply laying out their best case for why Bloomberg was, uh, you know, in effect on the wrong side of the debate about vaping. Um, so I, I don't know if, I don't think, well, there's no evidence that either Michael Bloomberg himself or the people he has hired to run his foundation have any interest in really considering new evidence or questioning some of the assumptions they made. And you can see, see it um, manifest in the continuing rhetoric from some of his grantees, the people he's funding, who are continuing, you know, to talk about a, a vaping epidemic. I've seen, you know, graphics they put out that end in 2019 because they are not eager to show how much vaping among teenagers has actually declined in the last two years. Um, so no, I don't, I mean, I could have, I, I have some thoughts on what could be done, but I don't think persuading Mike Bloomberg at this point is a very um, useful way to, I don't think it's possible. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we haven't seen any kind of course correction or interest in alternative information, but just um, instead doubling down on on publishing misinformation through, you know, PAVE, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and those kinds of folks. Um, but one of the things that makes Bloomberg philanthropy stand out is their explicit aim of pushing government entities to enact Bloomberg's agenda. They go so far as to pay for staffers and offices of attorney generals. They have a PR consulting agency which provides free services to favored public officials. And you might expect the news media to be concerned about that intrusion on democracy. But instead, most of the leading out outlets actually think this is a wonderful turn of events. <laughs> um, what, what do you think about those dynamics? Yeah, that's very interesting what they've done with um, climate. Essentially, you're right. They hired they, they paid the salaries of lawyers who they you know, will encourage, I think, to sue fossil fuel companies or other people to, you know, push their climate agenda. 
Um, I don't know what I think about that because I'm honestly a little more sympathetic to the to the climate agenda. But I think it's fundamentally anti-democratic to do that. And I also can tell you that because of what I see as, you know, only in recent years, but, you know, a liberal tilt in a lot of the mainstream media, you know, if it had been a conservative group hiring, you know, lawyers to fight efforts to, you know, efforts to drive uh, climate legislation or whatever, there would be an outcry from from the press. But because this aligns with the general orientation of the press, uh, it really hasn't gotten much attention. But it is anti-democratic, I think, for people. I mean, it's fun to, you know, philanthropy is anti-democratic. And in a way that can be wonderful sometimes because it can particularly if you agree with some of the things they're doing, they can use their money to change public opinion and have a big influence on democracy. I mean, you know, philanthropy funded the gay rights movement in its early years in large part. And, you know, from where I sit, Mm -hmm. I'm glad that it did. But um, it's funding the climate change activism of the moment. It funded parts of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Uh, I guess the problem is, is when there, the the money is flowing entirely to one side of the debate, as it is now in the vaping controversy. And then the secondary problem is that people who reporters or other organizations uh, don't seem interested in calling out Bloomberg or calling attention to this. Um you know, you're right. You know, it's, it's, it's problematic, right? Because you have to separate, you know, personal opinions on any given issue, you know, uh, from, you know, just a a larger systemic look at, you know, how can influence play out here, you know, in a one-sided type of way. And I think that brings us to our our next topic I wanted to talk about. Um, You tweeted about this Associated Press uh, story last week. One of our oldest and most far-reaching journalism institutions, the AP, announced it would be taking tens of millions of dollars from deep-pocketed foundations to assign reporters to cover the stories that those donors prefer. And I think in this case, it was about climate change, right? Which, regardless of how you feel about that particular issue, you know, is there a problem with, you know, a group funding a journalism outlet to hire, you know, 20 plus new reporters to specifically cover one issue that that group wants to have a focus on? Um, you know, there, there are a lot of examples of this, right? There it's are. sort of a trend in journalism that's going around. Um, can you tell us different um, outlets and different foundations where you've seen this pop up lately? Yeah, it's been a big issue at the Gates Foundation, which is the biggest foundation in America. They have funded lots and lots of reporting on global development, you know, how people come out of poverty, as well as uh, health issues. Uh, Those are two big funding areas of theirs. I think the AP said in its story, it now has over 50 uh, people on their staff who are foundation funded. And um, NPR has also taken a lot of money from foundations. I think there's there's a distinction that you do want to make, which is there are people, I think the MacArthur Foundation, which, again, is one of the top 10 or top 15 foundations in America. I believe they've given a significant amount of money to NPR over the years. And you often hear them thanked at the end of a radio broadcast 
Um, I believe that is unrestricted money, and I don't really see a problem with that if they're giving money to the editors there and basically saying if you want to hire someone to cover crime in the streets of New York or climate change or what's happening in Ukraine, you know, go for it. It becomes a problem when it starts to skew the priorities of the of the of the the outlet. So all of a sudden, you know, Gates is getting a lot of attention trained on the problems that it sees as the world's most important problems. But if you think that, you know, other things are more important, um, you know, you're not really getting independent journalism there. You're getting journalism that has been strongly influenced by um, who's paying for it. And, and I just want to add one more thing to this because I had a little bit of personal experience with this issue some years ago. Uh, I wanted to write a story essentially saying that vast amounts of money, like hundreds of millions of dollars, had been poured into philanthropy to curb climate change and that it had had almost no effect. You know, nothing essentially of a significant nature, nature had been done in the U.S., and I, it, it ended, I, the story got written, but the first publication that I submitted it to took money from, I believe it was both the Hewlett and the Packard Foundations to cover environmental issues. And they were unwilling to, to run a story that was critical of the Hewlett and Packard Foundations. So I do think it's, it's both skewing what topics get covered and it's also more perniciously shielding the foundations from tough reporting. Right, right. And, Those and are two part, different things. Well, they're both very good points. You know, so a lot of where this is coming from, you know, I read in that AP piece, and certainly um, I think this is fairly common knowledge at this point, but the old ways that media had of funding itself are not working anymore in the digital age and, you know, tech, the way technology is evolving with social media, all of this sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, talk me through a little bit of that dynamic, you know, how we went from media outlets being self-supporting to, to now we're in the situation where, where there's this philanthropic funding. Well, that's a much longer conversation, but all I can tell you is that I'm really glad I essentially you know, got into and out of full-time work in media when I did, because it's really, really hard for a reporter to earn a living these days. And, you know, many, many newspapers have closed. Others have shrunk. Um, the web has a huge amount of information, but, you know, reporters are getting paid, you know, ridiculously low amounts of money to, to write. So it's just in a big financial squeeze. And, um, I, I don't I'm not bothered by the fact that foundations are stepping in. In fact, I think it's probably something to be applauded because I think it's healthy to have have journalism. It's the way that they're stepping in that worries me or that I think isn't right. Um, so, you know, again, foundations have found, funded this organization ProPublica, which does a lot of investigative reporting. And I think they do an excellent job. They have a big staff. They have really good people. But again, to the best of my knowledge, people are writing them checks and then saying, hey, good luck, guys, go out and do whatever stories you think. That seems fine. What doesn't seem fine is picking the topics because it, it could get crazy in the sense of 
you know, if I have a particular interest, let's just say in, oh, I don't know, you know, Central American poverty, am I going to give an organization money to go cover poverty in Central America and then they wouldn't cover it elsewhere because that's where they're, you know, that that's where it starts to skew what gets published and what gets broadcast is when it's a problem. Right. And it could make it seem that that public opinion and public focus uh, prioritizes an issue much more so than maybe it actually does if there's outsized media focus on one particular issue. And I think, you know, getting back to vaping a little bit, I think that's one of the problems with getting the full vaping story told is that there has been so much money behind the story being told by tobacco free kids and pave and and truth initiative that it just takes a long time to to hear the other side of the story and it's very complicated i mean it's just not a simple story to tell i think i spent the better part of three months leading up to the well no maybe two two months almost full time just trying to understand it all and most reporters you know, just don't have that kind of time to put into a story. You're absolutely right about that. You know, one thing that, that I wonder, right, journalism as a whole is already suffering from a massive loss of, of public trust on a variety of different topics. But, you know, specific to vaping here, you know, every vapor I know thinks that the coverage of nicotine policy in the mainstream media has been utterly horrendous. <laughs> and I, I and I wonder if the, you know, the folks, the executives at these media outlets, um, you have thought about ta- that taking huge money from a small number of donors to steer reporting is going to call into question their credibility with the public even further? Um, or do you think this is something the public's not really paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, vaping is, you know, it, it somewhat surprising, surprisingly to me, uh, and I, I kind of think I know why this is, um, you know, deaths from tobacco and what's happening with vaping, you know, has never been like a big story, except maybe with the rapid rise of Juul got a lot of attention. And then there was all the unfortunate um, misinformation and misreporting about E-Valley that created a lot of headlines. But I don't think it's on the radar of most newspaper editors. And, you know, again, when I, I worked many years ago at a couple of regional newspapers, the Hartford Current and the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News. And at that time, they all had dedicated health reporters who might be aware of the number of people who die from smoking every year. But I doubt that those papers anymore have someone who's a health reporter. And certainly in the last two years, they probably became nothing but a COVID reporter. So I don't think, you know, it's not on the agenda except to the degree that PAVE and tobacco-free kids and Truth Initiative have kind of put it on the agenda. The, the, the other challenge, I think, and this might be the story, it's again not simple, that, that I would try to tell maybe myself or have that, that I, if I, you know, if I was trying to make the case for vaping, it might be that the smoker has kind of fallen off the radar screen because most reporters are well-educated college graduates. 
you know, tend to come from middle class or better backgrounds and they don't come much into contact with people who smoke. It's just a different demographic and it's a set of people who are largely, you know, not they're they're ignored. I think you're right about that. And and that's paradoxically that could be a way to get people to pay attention to the story because at the moment there is such huge attention in journalism to the idea of um you know the importance of race and class and you know not leaving people who are forgotten behind although it's not a racial issue so much with vaping as it is i think a class issue and then there's some you know, issues, smokers tend to have some, uh, you know, mental health disorders or it's complicated, but I do think smokers, I do think most of us speaking for myself, living in a, you know, bedroom community of Washington populated by mostly well-to-do white people. I don't have anyone in my circle who's struggled to quit smoking, for example, and therefore I might have some personal connection to someone who quit by vaping. Right. So for a lot of folks that, that don't encounter that, it, it requires a, a bit of moral um, sympathy, right, <laughs> outside of their normal circles. Um, right. Well, so so what, one last question on this topic, and I'm going to speculate a bit here, but I imagine that um, if, for example, ABM wanted to bankroll a vaping beat at one of these national <laughs> news outlets, I somehow suspect we would get rejected in those endeavors. Completely. And I imagine, right, and I imagine that there are some foundations that are off limits as well. Um, so how are news outlets drawing the line on what money they will take and what money they won't take? And is that a, a, a subjective, is that sort of subjective decision making another type of corruption? You know, that's really a great question. I don't think they would take money from any company or industry group, right? So I don't think they would. Yeah, I, I know they wouldn't take money, obviously, from the tobacco industry or the oil industry, but even, quote unquote, you know, industries we all admire, whatever that might be, pharma, they wouldn't take money from. Um, but, yeah, I do think to some extent, pre-existing bias does come into play um i however just just to speculate myself for a minute it does seem to me i know there was the foundation for a smoke-free world that then got rightly or wrongly tainted as being a creature of the tobacco industry i do think if a funder like um, open society, you know, George Soros's organization, which has um, been, I th again, revealing my bias on the on, uh, very good on issues of drug policy and, and freedom of choice. Or, you know, the Arnold Foundation down in Texas from a very, uh, you know, nonpartisan evidence oriented donor, John Arnold, who came out of the energy industry. Um, but you can't predict what side of any political question he's on. If you could persuade them or someone could persuade them that this is a big public health issue that deserves more attention. Um, I don't know if they'd be able to fund journalism about it, but at least they might be able to help someone. I don't know who exactly it would be. Tell that story.
Right. You know, it's sort of it's fight a, fire with fire is what I'm saying, Amanda. It, it sort of takes money to be heard. So, so we need our own billionaire philanthropist is <laughs> what I'm taking away from this. Well, uh, we're, we're accepting all applications. So if any billionaires are listening, feel free to reach out to us. Um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate all of that because it is an interesting thought exercise, right? Because obviously, you know, one, one of the things that, that we need in a democracy and in a free society is a free press. And, you know, we, particularly vapors, we've seen how the press has gotten this issue so wrong. And so I, I think it's important to look at these kinds of influences and, and how they might shape coverage. Um, you know, on that note, uh, you know, on the one side, we've got this emerging question of philanthropy funding journalism. But on the other side, we've got this whole for-profit PR machine, right, that that sort of um, feeds these pre-formulated press releases to outlets that are very, very biased. And this issue of, of outlets maybe not doing due diligence and, and sort of running with these press releases they get um, and formulating their headlines accordingly, that's a that's a big enough problem, you know, and, and now we've got this concern concern of, you know, billionaires funding the media. And so, you know, I, I just wonder, you know, how do we ever get the truth out there? You know, absent a billionaire philanthropist of our own, you know, how do we get the truth out there? And I'm, I'm just so grateful that, you know, someone like yourself that has so much credibility on this topic and is obviously not biased towards the industry in any way um, has taken the time to cover this so thoroughly. That gives me hope, you know, so thank well, you for that. I do want to say, in fairness, there are a bunch of other reporters who I think have done good work on this topic. Um, there are people at Reason. Jacob Sullum wrote a whole book on smoking, and he's covered it well. And Jacob Greer wrote a book and has covered it well. And the people at Filter, I think, um, Alex Norcia has done a good job. Uh, my old colleague at Fortune, Joe Nocera, did some good work both at the New York Times and at Bloomberg even when he was there. So, it, it, you know, there are other people taking a look, but I do think both the, if you consider the major media, the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, certainly the television networks, um, that's where it has, you know, unfortunately just not been done well. And, and again, that may just be because of the class bias I'm kind of talking about. It was interesting. I was talking to just a friend of mine about this topic a couple and it's like oh god they were they couldn't believe that there was any use for vaping because they were concerned because their you know college age son had done some vaping in when he was away at college and they just thought this was awful um and they probably didn't occur to them that had he not vaped maybe he'd be smoking or you know smoking weed or drinking too much or maybe none of the above that there's there's not you know, that he wasn't going to kill himself by vaping. But again, the bias, I think, among the middle class is to see the problem with vaping, but not see the benefit. Absolutely. And, you know, just to be very fair, we've got some great people in our audience right now that have done wonderful work uh, covering vaping and, and very appreciative to all of them. At, at times, it's just very overwhelming the amount of, um, you know, mainstream national coverage that gets this topic so wrong or, or so biased, at least. 
Um, so I want to move on um, to the American Council on Science and Health, who recently published a compilation of bunk studies on vaping that are most frequently cited in the press. Um, these are usually the ones that find a correlation between vaping and some obscure health outcome, right? Um, but I always wonder, how did these researchers come up with these imaginative hypotheses in the first place? You know, do, are they just sitting around in their bathtub and have, you know, some kind of eureka moment where they say, gee, I wonder if vaping is connected to erectile dysfunction, right? Um, but then you look at the academic institutions involved, and you typically see tobacco control donors giving very large sums of money to those schools or those researchers. Um, have you noticed a similar dynamic. Yeah, I have. And I don't know enough about um, how academia works and what the incentives are really to to be an expert on this. It, it just so happens I'm looking at it in a whole nother context around, you know, how how funding for research into psychedelic medicines is being largely driven by donor interests. Um but I do see a lot of the, the work that seems sketchier is coming out of, you know, University of California at San Francisco, where, you know, Stan Glantz kind of led the way for many, many years. And, you know, really, I, that was maybe the other big story that I did was a piece trying to just look into how shoddy his science on vaping has been in the last 10 years. So I assume He's he's got some influence still and has hired people. Um, you know, again, I think it's important to look at the history and the credentials of scientists when you're reading the work. One of the most important things I read, uh, you know, when I first started out in this was a, a piece written by um, Cheryl Helton and I think David Abrams, both at NYU and the uh, dean of uh Ohio State's public health school, I don't remember the names, I'm sorry, the dean of the public health school at Emory. These were like people with just impeccable, you know, credentials generally and anti-smoking credentials in particular. And when you see four people like that saying, let's not get carried away with the problems of vaping, which is the way I'm summarizing their, their story in science, that I think really has to be paid attention to when you see, you know, uh, you know, a junior professor making a correlation that doesn't make sense on the face of it, I would hope more people view that with some skepticism. I, I would agree. But then we come back around to your original story where we've got these, you know, leading researchers and, you know, leading tobacco control experts writing to Bloomberg to take another look at the data. And, you know, despite their impeccable credentials, you know, they're, they're being flat out refused. And I, I think there's a similar dynamic that happens outside of philanthropy where, you know, we see these leading unbiased, very well credentialed voices emerging. And, you know, they're, they're you know, starting to make a dent in the discourse, but, you know, certainly a long way to go on that. But absolutely, I think the credentials do matter. And you, you brought up NYU. There's a bit of, of, of good news counterbalance to this. Um, there was a study this month from the NYU Grossman School of Medicine that showed how misinformation on the safety of vaping pushed by the CDC, the FDA, and Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, that whole crowd, 
um, how they've created this hostile environment for academic research into vaping. Uh, the, the NYU paper even revealed that FDA regulations prohibit research on vaping as a smoking cessation tool. Um, mm. That all to me seems like a, a kind of scientific malpractice. You know, how does it strike you? You know, I didn't read, I didn't know that was in there. I kind of skimmed that and, and missed it. Um, yeah, I, again, I guess the incentives, right? See, to me, it, it, I guess it depends on your, your mindset and where you are in your career. I guess if you're a young academic or someone hoping to get tenure, hoping to get promoted at a university, there's not a lot of reason to go against the grain but having said that i don't know where the grain is in academia because the the look at the paper i guess it was last fall where 15 former presidents of the society for research into nicotine and tobacco presented a very balanced i thought look at vaping highly critical of you know, the claims of PAVE and campaign for tobacco-free kids. And I assume those people have some power in the universities. So I don't really know enough about academic politics to say um, why the bad studies keep getting done. But I do think there's also a ton of good work coming out of academia, you know, particularly some of the work that's been done on the vaping bans and their effect and the the evidence from, you know, economists like Mike Pesco that uh, vaping or that e-cigarettes and cigarettes are sort of economic substitutes. So when you tax one or ban one, you're going to drive people to the other. This to me is also just the most dramatic um, argument about the anti-vaping people, which is that they have, you know, inadvertently, I assume, uh, become allied with the industry, namely the cigarette industry, that they had fought for so long. It, it just doesn't make any sense. It's a fascinating, fascinating insight into how hard it is for people to change their minds. It, either that or how corrupt people are. But I think it's more the former than the latter. Well, I, I I would like to think so too. I would like to believe uh, better of of human beings, um, you know, than that you know people are intentionally out there trying to keep people smoking. I'd much rather think, you know, it's more that they don't realize, you know, the unintended effects of some of these positions that they take. Um, the guy yeah. I'm really curious about, Amanda, is Matt Myers because he's by all accounts a very smart guy. He's devoted most of his life to fighting the tobacco industry. And I do think there's evidence out there, as, as I think David Swainer, the Canadian academic, put it, that, that groups like tobacco-free kids have become big tobacco's little helpers. Um, it's just stunning to me. It, it's so true. It's so true. And that's the thing that I can never get over is how do these folks not realize what their actions are actually resulting in? And and why is safer nicotine that threatening of a concept to them that they would do these things that as a side effect increase cigarette smoking? The exact I know that's the exact opposite of what they want to do. Right. I mean, you know, you can go down the rabbit hole of talking about the money that these groups get from the master 
master settlement agreement. And there's certainly some things there that, you know, merit discussion. But I, you know, I don't want to believe that their goal is to create more cigarette smokers, but it's what they're doing. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a fascinating question. I, I actually, I've gotten distracted or not distracted, but detoured onto some other topics, but it really is something I'd like to try to take the time to, to dig into, you know, I, I, it, it, I do think it tells us something about how hard it is once you're strongly wedded to, to a position. And I guess the question is, what's your position? But I guess for the anti-smoking and anti-vaping groups, their position is what? That anything that is connected in any way to the tobacco industry is per se wrong or anything you put in your mouth and suck on is wrong that isn't a lollipop. I don't exactly know what the position is, but they're wedded in some way to a point of view that I do think has led to closed minds around the issue of vaping. Either that or you and I and, you know, a lot of the people I presume listening to this right now have fooled ourselves into to being wrong. I mean, that's the that's the crazy thing about it. You, you'll never know in the end, I suppose. Yeah, but I'm going, you know, I'm going with the 15 former presidents of the Society for Research into Nicotine and Tobacco. I'll side with you on that. And, you know, I, I, I have a little bit of an unfair advantage, right? I was involved in this, you know, industry long before it became controversial, right? Yeah. You know, we had a, a long heyday of, of just being able to help adults quit smoking, you know, without all of all of these headlines about kids and all of the uh, propaganda out there, you know, we had years and years where we were just out there in our stores, spreading the word, you know, one smoker telling another smoker what worked, you know, having folks come in, getting them on the products and, and hearing all of these wonderful stories of, of how positively it changed their life. And so, you know, I've got a lot of firsthand experience with yes. this enough to know the truth. You know, the person that I'm concerned about, you know, it, are, are these policymakers, these lawmakers that have no experience with this. They're just hearing the headlines. They don't have enough time to read all the bills that are in front of them. And they've got to vote on this stuff. And, you know, that's that's who I'm really worried about, because in the end, that has dire consequences for the public health. Yeah. And and yeah, I, I agree with you. And I guess the other challenge for you and other advocates is the way that anecdotal evidence is sometimes dismissed in these kinds of debates. I, I see this in other areas as well. Um, and, I, I, you know, the truth is, like, there are a lot of people just, there are a lot of them are on Twitter. I don't know what else they're doing, but they're on Twitter a lot. And they are basically testifying to the fact that, that vaping has helped lots and lots of people quit a habit that over time was likely to either kill them or make them very sick. That should carry some weight. It really should in the political arena, you know, which is where in the end this is going to be decided. Absolutely. And, you know, it's an interesting point that you bring up about Twitter and, you know, coupled with what we've been talking about, about, you know, the decline of, of legacy media and, you know, the trouble they're having funding themselves in the age of social media and whatnot. Twitter, Twitter is a very good avenue that we have 
to really tell our story and get our message out there in the public conversation. And so I'm very heartened to see the fact that that so many vapors are on Twitter, uh, engaging in advocacy, you know, interacting in the public debate on this. I think that's a wonderful um, turn of events in the last few years where we've seen vapors get more vocal in the public conversation. Yeah, and I think the, again, the other thing, I'm sure you're on this case, because I think, Amanda, you've done a really good job of making the case, particularly in the last six months or so. I don't know why you're more visible now than you were before, but you've done a heck of a job. But maybe when, you know, we're in a congressional election year, you know, when uh, the congressman from Illinois, who's been, to my mind, again, not balanced at all in his point of view i've forgotten his last name now um goes back to his district to meet with constituents maybe he can sit down with 5 10 15 25 vapors who could tell their story to him and help open his mind to looking at some of the evidence and give him some of these studies by the eminent experts yeah, I, I would agree. There's always more advocacy that needs to be done. And, and certainly in an election year, there's a lot of opportunity um, to engage in, in those types of activities for sure. All you so, have to do is turn around. If you turned around one or two prominent Congress people, I'm sure others might be willing then to take a look at the issue. Because wasn't it Congress that approved, for example, the ban on um, the U.S. Post Office shipping, vaping, uh, you know, material that then led to FedEx and UPS doing it? And I did hear from quite a few people living in rural areas that this just made their lives much more difficult. Oh, it absolutely did. It, it was very harmful to small businesses. It was very harmful to rural vapors who who depended on receiving their products in the mail. And, you know, you bring up a good point because that um, when the PACT Act came about, you know, that was rushed through in the omnibus bill uh, and there was very little pushback or very little questioning of it. But then last year when we saw this attempt to push uh, a nicotine vape tax into this omnibus mm. bill back better legislation, we saw some very prominent uh, Democratic members of Congress take a vocal position against it, which I think was a very positive turn of events. Interesting. Democrats, as well as Republicans, didn't want to push the nicotine tax. Yeah, it shouldn't be a partisan issue, really. It's not a not a left right debate, as far as I can tell. Oh, I, I agree completely. I mean, on the one hand, you've got um, you know, harm reduction, right, which is which is a huge priority uh, for a lot of Democrats. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, individual um, ability to make choices. Right. And so it would seem to me that it would be a very bipartisan issue. Um, historically, it hasn't been so bipartisan. And so I'm glad to see um, a little more bipartisan engagement on that for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess you have to have some faith doing what you do or doing what I do that in the long run, the, the better arguments are going to win the debate. It's just a challenge in this particular moment on this particular issue because virtually all of the financial resources are flowing only to one side of the debate. Absolutely.
Well, with the time we have left, let's go ahead and turn to our media lap dogs of the week. Um, first off, there's been another rash of stories by regional broadcast TV outlets about incidents where illegal THC vaping devices may have contained fentanyl. Um, lab testing later showed that fentanyl was not actually present. And of course, these devices are part of the black market that's arising now from regulatory crackdowns. But the news outlets never follow up with the full facts or explain that that black why that black market is happening in the first place. Um, because, you know, you see the scare stories, fentanyl and vapes, and then you never see the follow up story. Oh, we were wrong. There was no fentanyl in the vapes. Right. <laughs> um, so the whole exercise seems to be about providing justification for more government intervention and more PR ammunition for these prohibition groups. Um, Mark, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, stories that spread fear and anxiety tend to drive audiences. So I don't like to criticize my fellow reporters, many of whom are working under tight pressure, but that just seems like that's what's going on now. Absolutely. Yeah, there should be follow-ups. I mean, you know, what can I say? It, yeah, it's, it's easy, particularly online, to just, you know, put something at the top or at the bottom of the story or take the story off if it turns out to be wrong. So yeah, that should be done. Uh, right. Absolutely. You know, it's not that hard to update a story with a little header at the top alerting readers that the information has changed. <laughs> False. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, you know, and it's, and on that note of, of regional outlets, um, I've, I've noticed lately um, some of these regional Ivali uh, anecdotes are, are starting to pop back up uh, and receive coverage again. You know, um, AVM, we did a whole Twitter thread a while back about, um, you know, how some of these regional stories are, are placed. And oftentimes they're just, you know, cut and paste press releases from uh, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids PR groups, right? Um, and so we've seen some of these stories start popping up. And, and one of the things I want to look into um, in the next few weeks is, you know, the, the regions where we're seeing these stories pop up, are those the regions where TFK and company are politically active right now? You know, is there any coincidence mm. between where these stories are happening and where they're really pushing legislation? So I don't know if that's the case, but I've, I've got a hypothesis of my own. I'd like to test <laughs> on that. Yeah. And again, I think the the best way to combat that kind of misinformation is really at the local level. So, you know, again, I know your resources and time are limited, but that, you know, when I used to work in, you know, local newspapers, it, a call from even local readers saying, you know, you got this wrong, it gets more attention than a call from a industry organization because there's a kind of uh, reflexive cynicism that, oh, that's just the industry trying to, you know, influence us or something. Right. It shouldn't be that way, but that's that's the way it is. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, sometimes that's frustrating for me because first and foremost, I think of myself as a consumer of these products, right? right? Because, you know, I started as a smoker, I found these products the same way any smoker would. And, you know, the business came later. And so, you know, I, I believe in these on a very personal level, but sometimes I do have to step back and, and realize that, you know, I am often perceived as someone with bias, even though I think of myself as somebody who is an anecdote of someone who successfully used these products. Right. 
yes, you're going to be perceived as, oh, she's a hired hand of the vaping industry. Right. And it's so funny because the passion, the passion came first and the business came much later. I got um, it. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. But um, that's just the reality, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, so next up, I want to talk about Politico. Um, vaping coverage in Politico has been especially slanted. Huh. Um, so a few days ago, AVM confronted senior editors with specific examples and demanded explanation for the factual errors, omissions, slanted framing, and one-sided sourcing across the entirety of their coverage. You know, that's one of our main issues with Politico is a lot of times they will give so much column space uh, to quotes from um, Matt Myers and folks like that and, and very little time um, to any of these unbiased experts, these unbiased researchers um, that, that have an alternative point of view on this. Um, but anyway, we had a correspondence with Politico and following that correspondence, they promised that upcoming coverage um, would be fair and balanced. But if mm. Politico continues this biased reporting, we're going to publicly post the full exchange we had with them, along with our analysis of their work. Um, but, Mark, I'm baffled by why Politico and other leading outlets slant their coverage in this way, because don't you think it would be more interesting for, for their audience, for their readers, to hear both sides of a complicated issue and have the information they need to make up their mind on an extremely subtle point? It seems to me sort of lazy journalism, but don't, don't you think a nuanced story would have more appeal to the readers, or do you think the readers just want these easily digestible headlines? You know, I personally, and, and, and I agree with you. I, I, I love stories that are complicated, but that might just be my bias. Um, and again, it, you know, probably at Politico, it's one or two reporters and maybe they have, you know, maybe they have, I'm not saying, a, they may have a point of view that government should protect people from, anything people do that might harm them in any way and that's gonna shape their coverage i mean i don't deny that my coverage is shaped somewhat by my idea that you know freedom of choice is an important part of america and america's history and there's got to be a really compelling reason for any government to step in and tell someone to stop doing something that doesn't hurt anybody else so i mean we all bring our ideologies and biases, I guess, to work every day. So that may be what's going on there. But I agree with you. Complexity is actually more interesting than uh, particularly a story that if, if you're just following what everyone else is saying, what's the point? Right. I, I agree. And, you know, Politico, I think they've tried to be fair on this in the past. I don't know how successful it's been. I, I know that, that you know, myself and, and a lot of other advocates took a lot of offense to being characterized as anti-youth vaping groups in that Politico piece. And so, you know, we really want to hold them to account for characterizing us in that way, despite, you know, them spending so many hours, you know, talking with us on background and that sort of thing to be able to, to characterize us in that way after, you know, the effort that we've put into to speak with them and provide them information is pretty offensive. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, but the fact that they've engaged with you after the fact, suggest to me that maybe senior editors there will pay more attention, or at least I would hope so in terms of making sure the coverage is 
you know, not only puts both sides of the stories in, but treats each side with the same amount of respect. I would agree. So last but least, um, I wanted to talk about the New York Times. A few weeks ago, the New York Times prize-winning journalist David uh, Farenthold, I probably mispronounced that, to a newly created... No, that's a... Oh, perfect. Okay, great. Um, to a newly created beat of investigating nonprofits and foundations. And um, just because of your expertise in this area, I wanted to ask if you're optimistic or pessimistic that the national press and the New York Times in particular can hold uh, the foundation world's feet to the fire. I'm a little bit optimistic. I mean, he's a great reporter. He did a lot of work on the Trump philanthropy, which I think he won a Pulitzer Prize for. There's another reporter there named Nick Kulish, who I believe is doing philanthropy full time. And very few newspapers have one philanthropy reporter. They have two. So um, I would certainly encourage someone to talk to either of them about maybe a broader piece on you know, Bloomberg and its work, not just on vaping, but as, as you mentioned before, uh, on climate or other issues where it, it could be just a general story on the, the unaccountable power of a very big foundation. I would think well, that would be right up their alley. And of course, Bloomberg is a huge figure in New York more than anywhere else because of his two terms as mayor. Well, that's a very good suggestion, Mark, and, and I hope somebody uh, takes that suggestion and runs <laughs> with it. Um, but that's, uh, that's all the time that we have today. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, what's the best way for people to keep up with your work, Mark? I would say on Twitter, uh, where it's just my name. And uh, also, you can subscribe to my writing at Medium. That's where I'm publishing 90% of the the, well, it'll really be all of the vaping work, because if I get something placed somewhere else, I'll write about it in Medium. And it's very easy just to go to my site there and click a button and subscribe to everything I write, which is not a huge amount. You won't get bombarded with stories. I probably write two or three stories a month at the most. But when you do, they're very impactful. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Amanda. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for inviting me onto this call. Yeah, always happy to have you. And uh, for all of our listeners, we will be back next Monday at our usual time of 3 p.m. Eastern. So join us then. Bye.